0: would do your will as we await the return of your son father it's in his name that we ask these things amen so we talk about christian theology there's one word that uh, maybe you hear it and your eyes begin to glaze over and it is the word eschatology okay how many of you had reason to use the word eschatology in the last week okay okay Nate okay he's in seminary most of us don't that's not part of our vocabulary like eschatol what does that mean it's study of last things okay end times what God is doing in the world that's a really important question for us to think about this morning what on earth is God doing on this earth what what is God doing in this world what what is his plan you look at the news and you follow what's going on in, in just sort of world events. There's a lot of reasons to be concerned, right, and be unnerved as we, 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 we've seen the effects of, of Hurricane Ian this past week and just the upheavals in creation. We, we know about an election going on in, in Brazil today. and. Turmoil in in our world. What what is God doing? What is God doing in our world? Well, that is what—that is the question that the study of end times seeks to answer. What is God's plan? What is it that He is doing right now, and what will He be doing in the future? Now, maybe I start talking about end times events, and you get, all right, we're going to find out who the Antichrist is, and we're going to set a date for the rapture. You know, when the Bible starts talking to us about end times, the overwhelming word that it gives to us is for you and I to be faithful. That's the takeaway, not to satisfy our curiosity, but to stir up our obedience and our faithfulness to Jesus. Come to Luke 19 today, and we're concluding our, our study of the kingdom citizenship section in luke's gospel verse 11 jesus addresses that question of when will the kingdom come what is god's plan what is god's purpose and what is it that we should be doing as we await his return follow along as i read our text luke 19 beginning in verse 11 and as they heard these things, Jesus has just been in the, uh, in the house of Zacchaeus saying, today salvation has come. Oh, salvation today. Man, the kingdom's coming today. Maybe Jesus is going to set up the kingdom. He added and spake unto them a parable. Because he was knight of Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. So he's pushing back on this expectation, like, oh, the kingdom's now, right now, end time, the kingdom's here, this going to be great, we're going to get rid of the Romans. He so said, let me give you a parable to kind of hit the brakes and to maybe wash the windshield a little bit, clear your vision. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. He called his ten servants and delivered unto them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained 10 pounds. And he said unto him, well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, "'Have thou authority over ten cities?' "'And the second came, saying, "'Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds.' "'And he said, "'Likewise to him, "'be thou also over five cities.' And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin, because I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he said unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up what I laid not down, and reaping what I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury? And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath the ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you, that unto every one that hath shall be given, and for him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken from him. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither... And in the meantime we are called to, to faithfully serve him as we await his return so they don't worry about trying to get the screens or anything back up and running we'll just uh, go with it our last hymns in the in the hymn book so we should be should be good with that here's the point of today's message and you probably got this just from reading this there's a mission that we have been given a task that we have been given while we await the return of king jesus and here it is that task is that we represent him and that we serve him faithfully and this is a task that is not just given to to pastors it's given to you as a christian that we faithfully serve the king until he returns So what is that going to look like? What is it going to look like for you and for me to faithfully serve our king? If you are a Christian here today, you are a citizen of God's kingdom. You are under his rule. You are his servant, ordained to represent him. So what is that going to look like? How do we go about serving Jesus in this world? That's a question that's fraught with difficulties, a question that Christians have wrestled with through history. What does that look like in the year 2022 in an increasingly secular society? If you wonder, like, hey, what is Christianity going to look like for my kids? What's it going to look like as we navigate this world that's not like the world that we grew up in? We can sit around and sort of pine away for, oh man, we missed the good old days and what things were like back then when this and that was going on. But the reality is, we are called to represent Jesus in this world, in this day, not in some other that we would wish. We're called to be faithful to Jesus in the country that he's placed us in, in the time that he has placed us in, not in some other time or place that we wish we were in. So what is that going to look like? What are some timeless principles that we can draw from this? What will faithful service look like? Well, number one, faithful servant means this. It means that we must await the king's rule and reign. We must await the king's rule and reign. Verses 11 and 12 explicitly tell us Jesus gives us a parable, gives us this parable to push back on the expectation that his rule, his reign would begin immediately, right? So he's saying, hey guys, there's going to be a delay. There's going to be a time of waiting. We need to to be ready to to, to wait and be faithful in the interim. So Jesus has just finished having dinner at Zacchaeus' house. Think about some things that have happened in the context. He's walked into Jericho. He ran into Bartimaeus who says, son of David, have mercy on me. And then Jesus has mercy on him. What's the conclusion? son of David right he's the promised king he's the one that we've been waiting for then he comes to Zacchaeus and says the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost the son of man alarm bells are going off in people's minds right the son of man is Daniel seven thirteen, the one who's going to take the kingdom who's going to rule forever right at, at God's right hand under, uh, the kingdom so they're beginning to think today salvation has come the son of man the son of David it's Passover time they're 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 remembering the events of the Passover in Exodus of God delivering his people out of Egypt delivering them from bondage they're thinking we're under bondage we're under oppression from Rome right now like this would be a great time so they've got these memories of Daniel 7 and the book of Exodus and 2nd Samuel chapter 7 and these promises of a king And what's more, notice verse uh, verse 11. He added, spake in the parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, the royal city, the city of the kings. The city where the kingdom is going to be revealed is going to be right there. So he's coming to the place where the king rules. And he's adopted the title of the king. And it's this time where they're remembering God's deliverance. People are thinking the kingdom is going to be established. It should immediately appear. Something glorious. He's going to, you know, after all, he can do all these miracles. What a great guy to put in charge of a revolt against rome if he can overthrow the romans and get rid of that man so they're thinking it's happening physical uh, a physical visual manifestation of the rule of god and in and in and the beginning of the age that the prophets foretold just a mere 17 miles from the city of the king So Jesus tells this parable to correct that false notion, to tell them, guys, there's going to be suffering before the cross. And here's why this is so key to to the story, to the program of Luke's gospel. Jesus didn't come to to set up the kingdom and to reign. He came to suffer on behalf of his people. He came to die as a sacrifice for sins. This delay in the kingdom is crucial for the purposes of God. Jerusalem would be the place of his rejection, not of his reign. His crown would be of thorns, not of gold. His, His throne would be a cross. You see, God's kingdom is established in weakness. It is established in suffering. It is established through atonement. His reign is a redemptive reign, him rescuing people from sin and making them citizens of his kingdom, a kingdom that is a spiritual kingdom that will one day be established physically on this earth. He came to redeem sinners from the curse of sin. So verse 12, he said, therefore, he's telling a parable. And this parable, by the way, has a lot of points of contact with reality, with spiritual reality. It's almost an allegory where typically in a parable, there's kind of one main point, one main takeaway. You're not supposed to read too much in the details. But here, as you read this parable, you can kind of see multiple parallels with God's plan. A guy who leaves for a while and comes back as king. Okay, that's referring to Jesus. He's going to leave. He's going to return. There's servants who are to represent his interest. That's us there's the people who rejected him you think of the the jewish nation they reject their king and really the world as a whole there's this judgment at the end so there's a lot of a lot of points where this sort of gives us a road map for his plan for the future so this kingdom it's expected in verse 11 but verse 12 jesus tells us is going to be delayed a certain nobleman an individual of noble birth who would have claimed to, to to serve as king went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then to return now, for this to make sense, we've got to understand something about the historical situation, because you're like, why would you go away to get a kingdom and come back? Because we think of a kingdom, we think of a realm, right? You're like, okay, the kingdom, the United Kingdom of Great Britain, of uh, there's an actual piece of real estate. But when the, the New Testament's using the word kingdom here, it's not referring to a realm, it's referring to the kingly authority. So he's going to go away somewhere and get the right to rule, and then come back and actually exert that rule over the, this particular place. This story would have immediately connected with his audience it's almost like he took up the Jericho Daily Express or whatever their newspaper is or the Korean Times uh, or their version of of Fox News and and here's a story from recent history that I'm going to sort of give you echoes of there was a king who was a sort of a petty tyrant over the area whose name was Herod the Great now Rome's really the one in charge right they don't really tolerate people who are, are going to do their own thing so, Herod the Great basically rules with Rome's permission. The same Herod the Great, by the way, who killed the babies in Bethlehem. Well, he dies in about 4 BC, so about 30 years before the time of Christ, before the time that Jesus is speaking. And he's got a son whose name is Archelaus. What a great name. You want a good baby name? Archelaus is his son. And Archelaus wants to inherit his dad's title, king so what does he do he does what everyone else at that time does if you want that he takes off to rome far country goes a long way away archelaus goes off to rome to petition to the to the caesar to say hey can i have this title of king to inherit the the realms and the titles of my father so off he goes to rome but here's the deal the people in palestine hated archelaus and for good reason he was a really really cruel individual he was a bad dude he was a, uh, a violent oppressive ruler and so they send this delegation off after him, and so he gets to Rome and be like, hey Caesar, give me the, the kingship, and there's already people who have beat him there who are like, don't give it to him, he's really a bad guy, and there's all of these Jewish people in Rome who come to Caesar's court and are like, don't let him rule, and so Caesar takes a few days, and sends him back, he's like, listen, we'll make a compromise, you'll go back, you won't be king, you'll be called the ethnarch, you'll have sort of authority over this people, and if you do a really good job, you'll get to become king, well, short, long story short, he ends up being a horrible ethnarch and never gets the title king, he slaughters 3,000 Jewish people on the Temple Mount and almost creates a rebellion. And the Romans come along, kick him out, and they put their governors in place. That's how you have Pontius Pilate by the time we get to the time of Jesus. You get a, a, a military dictatorship because he was such a horrible king. So taking that basic storyline, someone goes to Rome to request the kingship, to come back, exert their rule, but people who hate him, who try to prevent that, Jesus takes the story and then gives it sort of a surprise twist. You see, unlike the story of the wannabe king, Jesus is the true king. And whereas Archelaus was hated because he was cruel, Jesus is hated because he is good so there are some differences but there's that basic storyline that would make sense so when we come to verse 12 a nobleman went to a far country to receive himself a kingdom and then to return he's getting the authority and then he's going to come back and exert his rule exert his reign so when we read that concept of the kingdom in the bible don't think well that has to be a physical piece of real estate has to be real tangible it simply refers to the the rule of god the authority of god To rule and to reign. Now, think about the implications of this. To be faithful servants of the king, we are awaiting the king's rule. Yes, Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom. He says, Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. He's inaugurated the kingdom in the sense that there's a spiritual kingdom, and those who are redeemed become citizens of his kingdom. He's ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He is ruling and reigning from heaven. In fact, Ephesians 1 pictures him as having authority, that he is ruling all of the universe in the interests of his church. Jesus is king. We do preach the kingdom. We do call people, submit to the king, come become citizens of the kingdom. But it's very obvious to us. He has not defeated every enemy death is still an enemy sin is still an enemy satan is still deceiving the nations we await the return of king jesus to come and rule and reign on this earth and the bible tells us in revelation that he's going to come back and he's going to rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years that's our hope we pray thy kingdom come once we get that that yes there's a spiritual sense of the kingdom but the, the the dimension of him actually ruling and reigning on this earth it helps us understand what we're meant to be doing right we're 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 not building his kingdom we're not legislating his kingdom and we're proclaiming his kingdom our mission beloved is not to establish a theocracy okay our job's not saying we got to make america a christian nation because that's the kingdom not at all our mission is not to christianize the culture our mission is not to transform society it is to faithfully represent jesus until he returns and as surely as this king left and came back jesus left and he is coming back one day let's not get too much hope or optimism in the in our ability to make this world somehow fit for the kingdom this world is not getting better it is getting worse the ocean liner has hit the iceberg and it is sinking our goal is not to rearrange deck chairs to make the deck a more comfortable place to drown from. Our goal is to get people into the lifeboat. That's, that's our mission. Don't put your hope into to politics. Don't put your optimism and your, your longings into who may be elected president in the next election or in the midterms. Yes, we want to speak for righteousness. We want to have an influence on society. But ultimately, the kingdom will be established when the king returns supposed to be about his business which brings us to our, our our second responsibility we're here to represent him as we wait we're waiting for the king's rule secondly faithful service to the king means this we must represent the king's interests we're here to represent him while he's away before he returns so verse 13 so there's this no woman he's left town but before he leaves notice verse 13 and he called his 10 servants words doulos slaves bond servants And delivered them, gave to them, handed over to them ten pounds, and said unto them, Occupy till I come. So he's giving his servants a responsibility while he is away. So before leaving to receive that kingdom, he summons the slaves. He gives them each, what's translated here, one pound. Now, that doesn't do much for me. We don't use that currency. Uh, The the word that's used here is the word mina. That's the, the, the Greek word. And it's roughly worth about 100 denarii. Okay, a denarii is one, basically, a day's wage. So about 100 days worth of working. So say three to four months, depending on whether you work six or five days a week. So just sort of do the calculations in your, your head. I, the way I did this, okay, let's just say everyone makes 40000 a year. That's roughly medium household income. So about $10,000. He gives each of them about $10,000. A pretty decent sum but you're not buying a new house with ten thousand dollars right you're you're not going to be you know completely transforming the city of mobile with ten thousand dollars you might be able to buy a used vehicle but the way inflation's going you might not be able to it's a good amount of money but it's not an enormous millions of dollars kind of sum they're all given the same amount and they're called to administer his interest while he is gone now we get this command occupy till i come we hear that word occupy we think well just 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 stay Don't, don't go anywhere Uh, that word actually is a much stronger word and it's really important that you get what this means this word does not just mean hang out it doesn't just even mean you you might tell your kids hey keep yourself occupied like don't get into anything it's actually a far more active word it means this do business or trade this is a business word the word says take that one mina that, that three or four months worth of salary and do business with it invest it trade it make it grow you're not meant to just take it and sit on it, but you're meant to go and invest it. If you if you miss that, the master, the king's response at the end of the story, where the one guy who didn't invest it and he really goes off the handle again, you're like, that seems really arbitrary. Like, how was he supposed to know what to do with this? Because this word, "occupy till I come." actually means do business so by the way in 1611 when the king james was translated it meant to be busy or employed our language has changed occupy now means go live in a house and stay there 1611 it also had the sense of do business and be engaged in in business so just put that in your even write that word in your margin do business till i come now there's another parable that's similar to this one in matthew 25 we get the parable of the talents Which some people are like, oh, it's the same parable. Well, actually, there's some differences there. The servants are each given different amounts. A talent refers to something that is about 60 times the amount of a a minor. They're given much larger sums of money. They're given unequal amounts of money. Here, they're all given the same. I think Jesus is taking the same basic theme. He's telling it with sort of different emphases different occasions. But what is the resource? Okay, let's just make, make some application here. They're all given the same resource, they're all given the same task, they're all given the same mission. What is that mission, what is that task, what is that resource that God's servants have been given, that Christ's servants have been given? I think it's the Great Commission all of god's people are given one basic task there's listen there's differences in the tasks that you and i have and the missions we have depending on your role if you're a parent god's calling you to bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of christ if you're an employer or an employee you might have slightly different roles but what is it that we are all all have in common that we are called to do make disciples of the nations you realize that's given to every single christian Just like all the servants in the story are given the same task and the same resource, we're all given the same resource, the gospel and the same task, go and multiply it until Jesus comes back. That's the command. That's the commission that we are given. You notice the servants aren't told, hey, go defeat my enemies and and win the conquest for me. He doesn't tell them to do that. He doesn't say, go go establish the kingdom on my behalf. They're not commanded to do that. That's That's not the task of the church. It's not our job to build the kingdom for Jesus there's this idea today that's growing in prevalence and I want to mention this because it's becoming more and more popular this idea that we as Christians need to sort of bring everything under God's authority we need to bring all of education and the arts and government and politics we need to get Christians into all of these political offices and, and just sort of take control of society I'm all for Christians being involved in leadership don't get me wrong I'm all for Christian values influencing the legislation in our land but that is not the mission of the church We do not bring the kingdom in by bringing everything under the lordship of Jesus. Rather, we are called to do business till he comes, and when he comes, he will establish the kingdom perfectly. It's not our job to to, to do that every christian has been entrusted with the king's resources so first timothy one eleven talks about the gospel being a sacred trust that has been handed to us it's like here's this thing of immense value it's been given to you to protect to protect and preserve and also to proclaim So we have been entrusted with the king's resource, with the gospel message, and in his absence we are called to make disciples of Jesus. So Matthew 28, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth, I've received the kingdom. Go ye therefore and make disciples of the nations, all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, which means the task goes till the end of the age. So we're called to further the king's mission, to be active in the king's business, to be like entrepreneurs. Think about what these guys would have done. You get creative. He doesn't tell them how they need to go and multiply the mina. The amount of money, so here it is, manage it well, multiply it while i 'm gone. There are ten thousand different ways that you and I can go about making disciples of Jesus uh, that 's why i 'm sort of hesitant to have like a well here 's a church ministry where we just do we do it this way. Rather, what I would say is christian you 've been given the gospel you 've been given a task. Now you find a creative way to speak the gospel in the context God has placed you. has he placed you in a classroom? As a student, how can you reach out to the students around you and have gospel relationships? Think about the job that you've been placed in. How can you begin, maybe you're not allowed to witness while you're on the job, but how can you build relationships with your coworkers and open your home up and say, come on over, we're going to have a Bible study, let me start speaking the gospel to you. How can you reach out to neighbors? These servants aren't told, here's the one way to do it. No, 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 varied how you go about multiplying that mine up. We are to be occupied with the master's mission. The great commission from our soon returning king of kings. That's the mission of the church. We don't establish the king's reign. We declare it. We call sinners far and wide to come over to his side. And this means this. Let me say something very directly. If you are not engaged in making disciples, you are sinning and you need to repent. If there's not some way that you are actively engaged in with sharing the gospel with someone or building a relationship or helping someone find and follow jesus you are disobeying the main thing that jesus gave us to do until he came back so i'm busy i'm a parent and i'm doing all these things okay use that as a platform to speak the gospel but also don't use the responsibilities god has given to you as an excuse for disobeying him He's given us responsibilities as parents and as co-workers and as, as employers and employees. He's given that, but he's also given us a main task, make disciples. So how are you doing in that? When was the last time that you gave the gospel to someone? When was the last time that you called a sinner to repent and believe in Jesus? When was the last time you won somebody to Christ and saw them converted and baptized and growing in, to Christian maturity. Now, we're not called to, we're not required to bring about great results. You know, one plants, another waters, God gives the increase. But that verse does not say, one plants, another waters, but God does not give the increase. We believe in the sovereignty of God, which means when the gospel is preached, God will bring sinners to belief in Jesus Christ. Don't, let's not use that as an excuse to be unfaithful. So we need to know the gospel. Do you know the gospel? If I were to put you on the spot to say, okay, it's 60 seconds, tell me the good news of Jesus, what would you say? By the way, the gospel is not invite Jesus into your heart. The gospel is the fact that there is a God who is holy and righteous, and we are sinners who have rebelled against against him. And Jesus came and lived a sinless life and died in the place of sinners and rose again from the dead— and he commands sinners to repent and to believe in Jesus. That's the gospel. Don't, don't boil the gospel down to just sort of the response. The gospel is good news of what Jesus has done to redeem us. Would you be adept at being able to share that message? Just say, Man, I don't know that I could. That's why we're here as a church, is to be able to help one another be equipped to do that. I've got a great book, What is the Gospel? If you haven't read it, you need to read it. It's a great book that—I didn't write it—but a great book that can really help equip you with knowing what the gospel is and how to share it. You need to know the gospel. You need to speak the gospel. The gospel needs to be sort of like our native language that is natural for us to speak in terms of the gospel. What I mean is more than just going off and being like, all right, here's the Romans road, let me rattle it off to you. By the way, we should know, we should know the, the basic contours of the gospel. But to be so familiar with it, it's not hard for us to find ways to come into the gospel, into a gospel conversation. We need to pray the gospel. You know, here's something I have found. If you ask someone, you know, they're sharing stuff going on in your life. In their lives, they're like, man, this is really going on. Can you pray for my kids? They're struggling. You know, I'm dealing with this diagnosis. If you say, can I pray with you right now? I've never had someone who said no, right? Unless there are maybe, you know, a militant atheist or, or something like that, but I've never had someone say no. What if you were so familiar with the gospel, it was really natural for you as you prayed with them to pray gospel-empowered themes, As you come to pray, God, we come to you through Jesus. We thank you that through Jesus we can be forgiven, even though we are sinners. To where they're hearing more than a cliche prayer. People hear cliche prayers all the time that, God, would you please bless and would you please heal. Where you're praying from the gospel as one who is accepted in the beloved, that will stand out as different than the other prayers that they have heard throughout the week, I guarantee you. And it might be just like putting a little rock in their shoe. They'll be like, that was a, I've not heard someone pray that way before. You never know what that seed of just praying a gospel-shaped prayer may do as you interact with people around you. Now, let me just continue on here. We're talking about the fact that we are to represent the king's interests, furthering his, his mission. Verse 14 just notes we're doing this in enemy territory. His citizens hate, hated him. So remember, he, he's in a particular region. He wants to be the king, so he goes off to Rome to get the authority and then to come back and to reign. People in that, in that region hated him like they hated Archelaus. In Jesus' story, they hated Jesus, the true king. What did they do? They rejected him and they crucified him. He came into his own and his own received him. Not all four of the gospel accounts highlight the fact that Jesus was rejected by his own people, hated by his own people, crucified by his own people. They rejected their king, a king who was infinitely perfect and just. There's even a stunning place in John's gospel when they say, "We have no king but Caesar." Like that's a stunning, hypocritical kind of statement. They hate Caesar. But like, we want Caesar as our king. We would rather have this cruel taskmaster, this cruel dictator, this horrible tyrant than Jesus to be our king now it wasn't just the jewish people we live in a world whose default setting is to reject the rule of jesus in their lives that's that is the essence of sin sin is not merely imperfection sin is the rejection of the rule of jesus right it's the rejection of his law in our lives and we're living in a world where his citizens hated him those who he would rule over do not want him to rule over them who do we want to have rule one ourselves you want to be able to call the shots in your own life now there's plenty of people in our city who are like i believe in god i believe in jesus but i don't really want that to change my life like i don't want to move out from living you know with my girlfriend or my boyfriend i don't want to go that far yeah i believe in jesus yeah i believe in jesus but i don't want to like give up sunday to go worship him with his people that just is too much i I believe in jesus but I don't want to actually ch- see anything change in my life in any meaningful way. Lip service the king, but in your heart, actually rejecting his rule. That, that, that's sin. That, that's what sin looks like. So, yeah, I, I like Jesus, but I want to speak lies. I, I want to gossip. I want to malign people. Rejecting the king's law. People today want to hold the king at arm's length. We want to rule our own lives. We don't want Jesus to call the shots to make the rules and to have ultimate sway. So that's the world where these servants are less. Think about this. You're like, hey, you're going to do business. And by the way, everybody hates your master that you're representing. These servants aren't just given a task. They're actually empowered. They're actually commissioned. They're taking the king's resources and then in the king's name going and doing business as if they were standing in the place of the king. Except the king is hated. We do the same thing. We are ambassadors for Christ. We have the name Christian upon us. And we're called to represent our king's interest and to do business in this world, by by do business, proclaim the gospel, make disciples, in a world that is predisposed to hate the king. We're representing the king, beloved, in occupied enemy territory. Our, Our citizenship is in heaven. Our main identity is as Christians. It's not about the nation that we belong to. It's not about the political party that we adhere to. Our identity is as Christians who are citizens of heaven, and that is what ultimately defines us. And that quite often will put you at odds with the culture around you. That quite often will put you at odds with all the political systems around you. That will put you at odds with the culture in your workplace and even within your own family. And it's okay because we're representing the king who's going to come back one day and make all things new now servants of the king does loyalty to the king have ultimate sway in your life say yeah 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 it does does it it shape the way that you parent does it shape the way that you lead in your your marriage here's the deal as, as parents and i'm beginning to learn this yes i've been given authority by jesus but it's authority to represent jesus not to make timothy do what i want him to do but rather to represent the righteous and loving leadership of jesus in his life The same is true for a husband leading his wife. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church under authority. Think about how much better your use of authority would be if you recognized it's under the lordship of Jesus. But we must move on here. Faithfully serving the king means we await his rule and reign. That's the first first truth, the first principle. The second one what we just noted is we must represent the king's interests, and we do that in occupied enemy territory thirdly we must anticipate the king's reward so look at verse 15 verse 15 and it came to pass and by the way the implication has been a long time going to rome isn't just like hop jump and a skip over there but it's it's actually quite a journey to go to rome and to, 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 to hobnob with caesar and to do all these negotiations to come back it's been gone a long time that when he was returned having received the kingdom okay so here now we break from the story of archelaus archelaus didn't get the kingship jesus does come back as king you can read about it in revelation 19 there's a name written on his vesture king of kings and lord of lords and revelation 20 he establishes a kingdom for a thousand years on this earth and then reigns forever unlike archelaus jesus will one day return as king all right and unlike archelaus the foes are not successful in thwarting his kingship he's going to come back he's going to win a king to pass when he was returned having received the kingdom then he commanded that these servants be called unto him to whom he had given the money that he might know how much every man had gained by trading so he comes back and his first item of business to get these 10 servants who he had given all one mina apiece say okay what did you do while i was gone now the issue here the, the test here is not so much are <laughs> you really good at business the question were you loyal to the king i said just a minute ago they're in occupied enemy territory going out and doing business on behalf of the king is a demonstration of loyalty to the king no doubt I brought a lot of scorn and hostility on servants if they're surrounded by people who hate the king so had they been loyal to me have they been obedient to me have they done the thing that i have called them to do Anticipating the king's reward. And the first came saying, Lord, thy mina, your mina has gained 10 pounds. You have the humility and say, hey, I did some really, real snazzy stuff on the stock market here. I, look at all the, I got a, a thousand point return. He says, your mina has earned 10 more he gives all the credit to the to the king and he said them, well thou good servant because thou hast been faithful in a very little okay ten thousand dollars decent little sort of initial investment to open up your your Roth IRA okay you've done a good job with that he's not going to say now I'm going to let you invest a Oh no 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 you will have authority over ten cities like a whole region of the kingdom you're going to rule over on my behalf you the fact that you were you were faithful in the little thing in the face of hostility shows that you are trustworthy to have greater responsibility in the kingdom the second came saying lord thy pound hath earned five pounds verse 19 and he said likewise then be thou also over five cities so the king comes back to square up with his servants and he gives them a reward now i want to note just a couple of items about this reward notice it's guaranteed the reward is as guaranteed as the savior's return the savior is going to return one day as king and all of his servants all of his people will be rewarded for their faithfulness to him during the time that he was away savior his resurrection declared him as king the ascension seated him as king and his return will reveal him as king and when he comes back as king he will come with a reward for all who have been faithful to him Let me show you what this looks like over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn over there with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is talking about his endurance in ministry, what is motivating him to endure in ministry. He's talking about the fact that even though we might die, we're going to be welcomed into God's presence to eternal life, to see Jesus face to face. And then he says in verse 9 second corinthians 5 verse 9 wherefore we labor that whether present or absent okay whether we are dead or alive whether we're with jesus or still on this earth we may be accepted by him he said, the longing is that we would be pleasing to our king for we must all appear before the judgment seat of christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done whether it be good or bad there will be a time of rewarding of reckoning for god's people now, back to our account in Luke, there's this guarantee you will stand before King Jesus one day. As a believer to face, to receive rewards, or as a lost person to face his judgment, you will stand before and By the way, everything will be judged. Every word, every motive, every deed done or left undone that ought to have been done, every thought will be laid bare. Everything that we have done in this life will be laid out before our King. I think that we, need th- we, I, I think we would do well to think on that truth more often. I think it's so easy for us to kind of get along off into our own little world and to lose sight of eternity. We're going to stand before the king one day. We're going to give an account. There's a guaranteed reward. But back to our text in Luke 19, notice how generous this reward is. So, okay, you've been faithful with one mina. You made it produce ten. Okay, and a thousand percent return. That's pretty good return on investment, right? Uh, in Parables, you can do stuff like that. Not every detail in a parable has to be like true to life. Thousand uh, percent return, awesome. Okay, you've been faithful. You got ten minas. You're now going to rule over ten cities. You notice there's really no comparison between even if he just said you can keep. You now have a hundred thousand dollars. You get to keep it. Okay. No comparison to ruling over ten whole cities, right? To have a whole region of the kingdom under your authority that you are responsible for to, to, to administer for the king. What I want you to notice is the reward far, 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 far exceeds the service. The service, right? It's not just, well, you did one little thing, so there's going to be sort of a quid pro quo, and your good deeds will now result in equal, equal rewards in the kingdom. No, the rewards are exceedingly beyond what would be deserved this is not rewards are not bribes rewards are not payments that are payment that is rendered for for certain services it's not okay you served me for this amount of time you won souls now here i'll pay you off rewards are completely totally undeserved hey these guys are servants they're slaves the king is under no obligation to do anything for them this is not about debt this is not about what is owed this is about him being generous and gracious and one day beloved every deed that was done for the glory of christ whether it was ever noticed whether it was ever rewarded whether it was ever whether it was ever recognized will be recognized and rewarded by the king in an infinitely greater way than you can even begin to fathom It'll be all of grace. It won't be earned. So don't think of rewards as, okay, I get saved by grace and then I earn rewards by works. No, the rewards are by grace as well. Every good thing that we get from God in time and eternity is by His grace because what do we deserve? Nothing but eternal hell. And here he goes beyond that. Not only do you get to live, you get rewards and you get rulership and authority in the kingdom it is a guaranteed reward but it is a generous gracious infinitely greater than the service kind of reward each servant who went out and did this they believed the master's promise to say the master has promised to return and i'm going to live like it the master has called us to be obedient and we're going to live like it and for all eternity Those who faithfully serve Jesus will reign with Jesus. We will enjoy Jesus. We will worship Jesus. And He will be the joy of heaven. He will be the glory of Emmanuel's land. Now I say this as an encouragement to you. You will often serve without thanks in this life. You'll be like, man, I did this thing at church and like Pastor Sam didn't notice and and nobody like there wasn't like i I didn't get a plaque. As long as we can get kind of our feelings hurt when we don't get recognized. Get your feelings hurt when you don't get noticed. But what if you're not serving us? What if you're serving Jesus? What if it's his recognition? What if that's the only thing that really matters? You're a parent. And day in, day out, behind closed doors, nobody recognizes just the sacrifices that you make so that your children can grow up to love God. They might never thank you for that. They might even resent it in the short term. But Jesus will one day reward that service. You're a spouse. You're you're, you're sticking with it in a difficult situation. You say, I'm going to love my wife or submit to my husband. I'm going to try to be Christ-like. It's not always easy. There's not much thanks for all the things that I do for this family. What if you're doing it for Jesus and not for them, ultimately? And what if Jesus one day will reward every service that is done for His glory in a way that's infinitely beyond what you would get from other people? In fact, Matthew 6 says, if you do it for other people, you have your reward. Like, I'm doing this, hopefully people notice and give me, you know, a little pat on the back. Jesus is like, that's it, you blew the heavenly reward for a little earthly reward. Is it really worth it to sacrifice that? I'm convinced that the if we were to figure out who the greatest christian on the earth is today it would not be anyone that we know it would be some saint who is serving silently in obscurity where nobody sees him or her faithfully being obedient to jesus in the mundane little things of life probably not the celebrity person with the blue check on twitter not saying that those people won't be rewarded but i'm saying that jesus values service offered to him in obscurity where there is no apparent earthly reward So say that as an encouragement as you share the gospel and you're like, this is not easy. And people think that I'm weird, like Jesus sees it and he's going to reward it. And we ultimately serve the king. We'll ultimately be rewarded by the king and it will be worth it. No one will regret having faithfully served Jesus in this life. Now, I want to come to this final Final truth here in this text. Is, we've got to faithfully serve Jesus. He is going to come back. We've got to await his return. We've got to represent his interests as we live in enemy territory. We've got to anticipate his reward. Listen, we won't actually uh, make sacrifices unless we believe it's worth it. But we also must prepare for the king's reckoning. I'm using that word reckoning in, in, in sort of a more negative term because what we see in verse 20. You notice the story sort of slows down. There's actually ten servants, but we get just three of them that are mentioned. We can sort of conclude that the other seven fit underneath one of the headings, like these other three, those who were faithful or those who were not. Verse 20 shows us a servant who was not faithful. And another came. And in the Greek, this is literally, and the other the one who is not like the first two, this one is an other, this one is an outsider, this is one who does not actually love and believe the king. And the other came saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. You sort of just, here it is, get it out of my hands. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man, thou takest up what you laid not down, and reapest what you did not sow notice the servant's faithlessness he's going to face a reckoning before the king and it's not going to end well for him he's quite faithless and when i say faithless i mean more than untrustworthy i don't get the impression that he really believed that the king was going to come back as king easier to get along with the citizens who hate the king than to go out and represent him before them he did nothing with his mina he made no investment he took no risks he did nothing He has no apparent loyalty to the master. In fact, one commentator says this, Daryl Bach, he says, although he is associated with the master, there is nothing that indicates any trust of the master. Now, why? Verse 21 tells us, Uh, just a quick word on verse 20. He takes the mina, he wraps it up in a cloth. Uh, He does, he just sort of like, ah, put it on the shelf. I'm not going to do anything with it. I'm not going to invest it. I'm not going to take any risk. He doesn't believe the master enough to even go take the most basic risk with that initial investment. So he says, I've kept it. It's mine, almost like I sort of t- sort of treasure it, you know, smiegel with the ring kind of thing. And, and I've wrapped it up. I've not actually done what the master told me to. Remember the key word here? Occupy till I come is do business till I come. He doesn't do that. He's disobeyed the master. He's not believed that the master really means what he says. And the reason I feared thee because thou art, uh, thou art an austere man. Notice that he has a very, very low view of the master. That word austere is actually just a transliteration of the Greek word austeros, uh, strict or exacting. He says, I know you are really strict and exacting and you demand a lot from people. And he explains a little bit here in verse 20. you take up what you did not lay down okay you withdraw money from the bank that you didn't deposit and you reap what you didn't sow. in other words you get rich on other people's backs you use your servants to go do all your investment for you and your servants will go out and reap all the crops for you you're a greedy penny pinching squeeze blood out of a rock kind of guy man that's a pretty low view of the master by the way is that actually true Well, if you look at what the master just did, the guy literally just gave away 15 cities to slaves. I would say that's the epitome of generosity. The the, the master is not actually the stingy guy that he views him to be. He views him through this distorted lens. The master is mean. The master is nasty. He's just trying to get stuff from me rather than, I love the master. I want to represent the master. I believe the master. This man has a loveless, faithless fear of the master and he's so afraid that he doesn't even do anything now the master responds so we see the servant's faithlessness in verses 20 and 21 but notice the king's judgment and he said unto him out of thine own mouth will i judge thee thou wicked servant no he says you're wicked you're evil because you have this hatred and disdain towards me you have this low view of me Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up what I laid not down, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not give my money into the bank? Did at my coming you might have received my own with interest? Now, the king is not actually agreeing to say, yeah, I really am a mean, nasty guy. But it's almost like, a, okay, if I'm really as horrible as you say that I am, you should have at least acted on that. Right? Like, this doesn't make any sense. You're contradicting yourself. He takes, okay, the standard that you yourself claim let me judge you by that you say that i'm a mean nasty you know greedy kind of guy that should have at least led you to take the money put it in the bank and earn some interest on it come on the the man's issue went much deeper than the king is the master is a mean nasty guy you'll be judged by your own testimony if i'm as terrifying as you claim that i am you should have done something and he did nothing so now we see what does he do we, we come down to verse 24 he said to them that stood by take from him the mina and give it to him that has 10, ten minas." minus so take the one from this guy and give it to the guy who was actually really good at investing the implication by the way is that the servant isn't just going to keep that money for himself he's going to continue to manage it for the master the reward that he gets his greater responsibility with the king by the way if you love the king why would you not want greater responsibility with the king So take the the miner from the guy who did nothing with it. Give it to the guy who has 10. Now the servants are shocked. They're like, he's already got 10. It doesn't make any sense to give the money to the one who already has. And then we get this paradoxical statement in verse 26. Everyone that has to him shall be given. And for him him that has not, even that he has, shall be taken away from him. You're like, that doesn't make much sense. Okay, the one who takes the gospel and invests the gospel, the one who multiplies the resource the master has given to him in eternity will receive even greater rewards. But the one who, who has it, doesn't do anything with it, they will lose what little they had. Now, in the Matthew account that I said is a not exact parallel, similar parable told on a different occasion. We get this added statement, take him and cast him into outer darkness. The servant who does nothing with the mina, now this might be really chilling to you, I don't believe is saved. Some people are like, well, he just represents a Christian who just doesn't do much for Jesus. I'm seeing someone who doesn't believe in the master, does not love the master, does not obey the master, has a distorted view of the master, and is judged by the master. I don't think we're talking about a Christian. We're talking about the kinds of people who come in and occupy a church pew. And they have some sort of external connection with with King Jesus, like, yep, yep, he's my Lord, he's my master. But the mina, the, the, the gospel, doesn't actually change their lives at all. It does not actually alter what they do with their lives or how they invest their time, how they invest their lives. The faithless servant here is wicked. He does not know the master. He is someone who professes to be a Christian, but does not actually possess Christ. One of the ones who will say, Lord, Lord... To whom Jesus will say, depart from me. I think we should take a careful look at our own lives. Are you investing the gospel? Has the gospel changed your, lives, your life in a tangible way That's just that goes beyond just being a nice person living in a conservative culture? Are you actively speaking the gospel to people? It's assumed in the Bible that those who have the gospel will share the gospel. And if that's not happening in your life... You've got to go back and say, why? Like, what's going on here? Why am I not doing this? Is this? Uh, do I need to step out in obedience? Is this because I don't really believe the gospel? I would, I would implore you that if that's you, don't be content to just sort of say, yeah, I'm a king's servant. I'm good to go. Come to the king in repentance and faith and become an obedient servant. Become a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, this reckoning ends on a very... So bring note verse 27, those enemies of mine, which would not, uh, which would not, which we were not willing that I should reign over them, bring them here and slay them before me. This is common practice in the ancient world. King comes along, the people who hate him. They get killed by the king. We see that in 1 Samuel, remember Agag, uh, who, who, who Saul was meant to kill, and he keeps him alive, and then Samuel comes along and, and hewed him in pieces before the Lord. Like really violent, gory kind of stuff. This is, this is true to life. This would have matched what people understood kings to do in the ancient world. Like Jesus, Will Jesus really do that? He will do something far, far more terrifying. Those who refuse his kingship will be cast into the lake of fire they will face not just a momentary judgment they will face an eternal judgment you see this doesn't seem like jesus no jesus is one who hates sin and hates disloyalty and hates rebellion to such a degree that he will judge it for all eternity and yet he's also one who is so gracious and so forgiving and so merciful that any rebel who will repent and believe before he returns will be saved Who are these enemies? They're the rebel citizens who rejected the king back in verse 14, who sent the messengers to try to stop him. The Bible affirms over and over again that those who don't believe in Jesus, the wrath of God abides on them already. Romans 1.18, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 9 says that those who don't believe in Jesus will, be, will face his wrath from outside his presence. Revelation 20 describes all standing before the, the great white throne and those whose names are not written being cast into the lake of fire. Revelation twenty one eight says that this is stunning every liar will have their place in the lake of fire. In other words, all of us are condemned. Our only hope is Jesus. So flee to Jesus. Flee from the wrath of God. You have a choice now to either submit to the rule of the king or to reject it. If you choose to persist in sin, if you choose to trust in your own goodness and sort of hope for the best, you'll face the fate of verse 27. At the end of the day, there's three different people that we can be in this parable okay we're not going to be the king that's jesus so quit trying to be the king but you could be the open enemy of the king i will not have this man to rule over me i'm going to do my own thing i don't want the king to rule over me open hostility that might be you open hostility there's the unfaithful servant The ones who sort of have a semblance of, yeah, we like the king, but they don't actually believe him and follow him, what we might just sort of regard as nominal Christianity. It might be you, nominal Christian. That's super easy to do in our culture, super easy to show up to a church week in and week out and not actually love Christ, not actually love his word, not actually love sharing the gospel. And then there is the genuine Christian, the servant, who have received The king's message who believe the king's promise and are actively investing it now not everyone's as good at it as others one of them has 10 one of them has five when it's all said and done we're not all going to have the same level of fruitfulness in our lives it may not come as quickly for all of us but there is fruit there are souls that are, are one to jesus so which of those three are you are you the open the open rebel against the king's authority are you sort of the secret rebel the guy who won't obey the king but pretends to be a servant or are you the faithful servant who is investing in the king's mission at the end of the day we're all accountable to the king at the end of the day the king will return so are you ready are you ready for the king's return father may we be faithful to be about your business.